0: to turn again to God's Word as we're looking at this section through the book of Ephesians that we said last week we saw this theme of authority running through it. And so with that in mind, I think it could easily be said that we live in an age of anti-authority. That We live in an age of anti-authority where people are opposed to authority. And we certainly have seen many abuses of authority, and that's caused great harm. Abuses of authority in politics, abuses of authority in corporations, abuses of authority in the entertainment industry, in our own workplaces, in our own homes possibly. As lamentable and sinful as those abuses are, the anti-authority spirit of people is not a new phenomenon, but it's as old as the Garden of Eden. In the Garden, Adam and Eve believed the lie that God could not love them and at the same time tell them no. And that line comes from Mark Dever, but I think it's so helpful. That Adam and Eve believed the lie in the garden, that God could not at the same time love them and tell them no. Therefore, they rebelled against his authority, seeking to be their own. And ironically, many in our own day... Seek to parent with Adam and Eve's faulty understanding of authority. Child-centered parenting techniques that trade discipline and boundaries for affirmation and negotiation are rooted in the understanding that love cannot say no. Yet think for a moment about Jesus, who came exercising great authority and used that authority to serve. Let me offer two examples where Jesus displayed great love. Think both from John's gospel, the woman at the well in John 4, and the woman caught in adultery. In the midst of these displays of great love that turned the paradigms of those who witnessed them upside down, Jesus still said no to both women. Jesus called out the sin of the woman At the well, and told her that she needed living water. Jesus told the woman caught in adultery to go and sin no more. And as we continue to look at the godly use of authority, we will see that authority operates like a trellis that helps the vine grow up in the right direction so that it is healthy and strong. Authority corrects in order to teach trim, in or, it trims in order to grow and it disciplines in order to train, is what Jonathan Lehman writes in his book. And so friends, this morning as we think on godly authority, let's think with these things in mind, that we, my, we are so extremely influenced by the culture that we live in that rebels against all authority. And it's even being shaped and formed by that mindset to where we must turn to God's word and see where we have parted f- to the right or to the left and be recatechized, reinstructed by God's word, and be reformed by God's word to how he has intended authority to be used. And so, before we turn to Ephesians 6, let me turn your attention to uh, 2 Samuel 23, and I'm just going to read it. If you want to read along with me, we'll just look at three verses there. But years ago, Mark Dever, addressing a group of pastors, mentioned this passage, and it was so impactful to me in my thinking on not just my authority or my role as a pastor, but in the home uh, and in, uh, in every avenue that God has given me any bit of authority or leadership that by his grace it would be instructed by this passage, and I fail often. If you look at 2 Samuel 23, verse 1 quickly, you can see that first line. Now these are the last words of David. And then go to verse 2, for the sake of time. The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me. There's a whole lot of emphasis there. Over and over, he's saying this is from the Lord. Look what he says. When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. And so there we see David instructing Israel, some of his last words, saying that when one rules well over men, ruling in the fear of the Lord, right? He dawns on them like a morning light. It it brings flourishing. Now, if you want, later this afternoon, you should do this. You should go and read Psalm 72, which we have read the last two Sundays, right? Today, uh, this week, and last week at the beginning of our worship service for our call to worship. And Psalm 72 acts something as an exposition of 2 Samuel 23. And the very words that we read this morning, there at the end of the psalm, what did it say? It said that grain is sprouting on the mountaintop. Now, I don't know about you, but I've spent a lot of time on mountaintops because I really enjoy hiking, and there's not a whole lot of vegetation up there, right? And the whole point of Psalm 72 is that this just rule brings flourishing and life to those who are under it. And that's the kind of authority that all of us would want to be under, and that's the kind of authority that all of us should seek to exercise in our lives and in the offices that God provides us the ability to do it. So with those things in mind, let's turn our attention to Ephesians 6. And let's look at verses 1 through 9 together. This is God's word. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bond servants, <clears throat> obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or, or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. This concludes our reading of God's word. May he bless not the reading of it only, but also the hearing of it this morning and our time as we look deeper into it. Last week as we began out and we looked at this passage that precedes wives and husbands, we could say that many have called this the household economy section of Ephesians, right? As Paul instructs wives and husbands, and then he instructs children and parents, and then he instructs bond servants and masters, which often this would have been within all the same household. And so we'll see a little bit of difference within our context and their context But even last week, we noted that preceding the whole passage of wives and husbands is this call for those within the church to submit to one another. And so we see this thread or theme of submission running through this section of Ephesians, beginning there in 521, as it ends that passage that talks about instructing one another in the church through the singing of songs, hymns, and spiritual uh, songs. So also moving through to wives and husbands, children and parents, and bond servants, and masters. And so briefly, let me just lay out a few high points. Once again, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on this, but I want to reframe as we return to Ephesians 6. And so you can listen to last week's sermon, or you can find the outline, I believe, still in the church app, and you can look uh, at what is said there. There are no slides this morning. And so, same, if you want the outline for this week, I'll be happy to provide that for you uh, as well, so that you don't have to... um, try to write things down if you are a note taker, right? So first, we borrowed much from Jonathan Lehman's book, Authority, and so I want to give credit again where credit is due and just hit a couple of high points. We won't even go into all the details that we did last week, but first, what is authority? It's authorization to do something. You do need to notice that it's something. It's not anything and everything, right? Because authority is an office. And so I do not have authority uh, the same authority over Knox that Tyler has over Knox because Tyler is Knox's father, right? And so uh, <clears throat> although I may have the power to do something, uh, to, to offer that kind of, um, to offer the instruction to Knox that, uh, that Tyler is called to do, I don't have the authorization to do that. And so it's an office and that's where we're going. Authority is also an office. It's the ability to do something. Authority is the authorization to do it. So power is the ability to do something. Authority is the authorization to do it. Four purposes of authority that we talked about last week. Grow those under it. That's 2 Samuel 23 that we just read. Grow those under it. Next, grow those in it. So you can think about authority this way. The very word, the root word is there. Authority should author life. It should author life. It should give life to those who are under it, right? And so not only is it going to grow those under it, but if you're exercising authority rightly, then you should be growing as one who is in it. And all parents in the room said, amen, right? Parenting is one of the most sanctifying things you will ever do in your life. Authority creates groups, So families come together, churches come together, nations come together, corporations come together, right? Authority will create groups, and then last and most convicting, authority teaches what God is like, good or bad. You're teaching others that God is a tyrant if you rule, uh, if you do not use your authority well, or you're teaching others as God rightly is, like we just saw according to 2 Samuel 23, if you use your authority according to his word. Ruling justly according to God's word is what it says in 2 Samuel 23. The limits of submission. Are there limits of submission? Yes, yes. When authority requires sin, then no one has to submit to it. When authority drives outside of its lanes, right? then we don't have to listen to it. I don't have the authority to go out and pull people over for speeding in my neighborhood. I've got the power to do that, and might would enjoy chasing some people down. But I don't have the authorization to do that, right? So no one needs to listen to me if I seek to do that. They should actually call the real police. And so, right? And then also, when protecting oneself from wrongful harm, right? If a parent were to seek to strike a child in anger then that child has the right to duck, right? It doesn't need to submit to that authority. It should duck and try to get away and get protection. So to protect someone from wrongful harm, all right? Now, the theme of authority in Ephesians, we've seen, and I want you to notice this common thread. Over and over, there's this call to submit, and then notice what it's rooted in. Submit out of reverence for Christ, 521, members one another. As unto the Lord, wives to husbands. In the Lord, children, 6 1, and as you would to Christ, 6 5, those bondservants and masters. And so, with these things in mind, let's look now at children and parents in Ephesians 6 1 through 4. Ephesians 6 1 through 4. Now, as we begin this section, let me read to you from Psalm 78. You can write that down, 5 through 7. I think it's important. We could look to a lot of places. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6 and others. But let me look, uh, Psalm 78, because I think it summarizes very well the call for covenant parents, right? Those who knew covenant parents, for godly parents who were seeking to raise uh, their children in the ways of the Lord. Psalm 78, 5 through 7 says this. He appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach their children, that the next generation might know them the children yet unborn, and rise and tell them to their children, so that they should set hope, their hope, in God. Do you see that? He called from generation to generation to generation, children to children to their children, to teach. Why? So that they would set their hope in God, and listen, and not forget the works of God, but keep His commandments. And this is the call that we have as parents this is the call that Paul is summarizing here in Ephesians chapter 6. And so the first uh, party to be instructed are children. So even if your children in here this morning, some of our young kids are here, some of our teenagers are here, God's word is specifically instructing you here in Ephesians 6. Notice what it says, children obey your parents and the Lord for this is right and then he quotes from the Ten Commandments, right? Honor your father and mother, for this is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. And so, children, you are called to obey your parents. You are called not just to obey them, but also to honor them. Now, I want you to notice something that I think is really important. That there are two times in the New Testament where the Apostle Paul gives us a list of sins, right? And a list of heinous sins. But what you'll find within those lists is this remark. Those who are also disobedient to parents. And so what you'll see is you'll see the weight at which God places between the child and the parent. Let me just point these two out to you. Romans 128, there Paul says he's speaking about those who suppress the truth and who will worship instead of the creator of the creation. This is what he says. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, so they did not acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what They ought not to be done. So they've suppressed the truth. They've chosen instead to worship the creation instead of the creator. So God hands them over to themselves, is what he's saying in Romans 128, and that they would do what ought not to be done. And then Paul goes on to describe the godlessness that will result from this. Now, listen to what he says in verses 29 and 31. He says that we filled with all manner of unrighteousness, envy, murder, strife, gossips, haters of God, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, and faithless, just to name a few. Might surprise you to find that there within all those other sins of godlessness that Paul says would result out of God turning them over to themselves. About in 2 Timothy 3 1 and 2. But understand this. In the last days, there will come times of difficulty for people to be lovers of self, lover of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, and unholy. I think we would be wrong just to ignore these warnings. The children that you are called to obey your parents, and you're called not just to obey them, but to honor your parents. And that this call to obey and honor that God takes seriously, and that what he is saying is that that the result of this, of of all kinds of godlessness and sinfulness, that within that is this disobedience to parents. The reason for this is, is because the very first authority that any of us learn to submit to is the very authority in our home, our parents'. And if we don't learn to submit to that authority, then we will not be able to submit to any authority in our lives, even the ultimate authority, God himself. And the result is what we see in Romans 128, that there will be this suppression of the truth and there will be this desire to follow our own debased minds that will result in sin begotting sin, begotting sin, begotting sin, begotting begotting more sin. And so here within God's word, Paul is instructing the children there in the church at Ephesus that it is important that you obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And not only that you obey them, but that you honor them. And so listen to what this this means. To honor them means to give weight to so that you can honor them. That you would give this weight to mom and dad. And wait to their authority and wait to what they say. That what mom and dad says is more weighty than what your friends say. That's a hard one. That what mom and dad says is more weighty than what your culture says and catechizes you through songs and movies and advertisements. What it puts forth before you that says, this is the good life, but mom and dad are saying no. This tells you where the good life is. This tells you where true flourishing is. And that you are called to obey them and to honor them. And then notice what he says. He he, he points out that here, that this is the commandment that has a promise with it. And I don't mean to be crass, but let's just be honest. A child who doesn't obey mom and dad and never listens to mom and dad is not even going to be able to listen to to instructions such as don't play in the street and don't get too close to the edge of the cliff, right? We can see it very plainly that it will not go well for that child. And so if it would not go well in those things and it would not go well in other things as mom and dad seek to lovingly lead and point the child into the direction, into the ways of the Lord, that if they do not do that, it is not going to go well with them. And then next, let me point out one more thing. Children, obey your parents. So last week, I didn't emphasize this the way that I wanted to because this ties us back to what we see in the preceding verses. And I did in the notes, I think I put it in bold, that was put up on the... um, On our app, so you could look at it. But notice this parents, that's mom and dad. Honor your father and your mother. If you look back at uh, Ephesians, that this whole result of what's supposed to happen in the marriage is that husband and wife are doing things together, right? That she is the helper who is helping alongside the husband as he leads. And so she helps him. And so the primary task that God may give them is raising parents. I mean raising raising parents. Well, maybe that no, I'm just kidding. Uh, is raising children, right? That might be a, a task that God would give them. But there are multiple things that they, that, they, that they will do together, right? As they serve side by side, as they fulfill God's call for them to go and to establish and to show forth godly authority in this world. And that could be through serving in the community together, serving in the church together. That could be through serving in uh, the workplace together, that as they help and assist one another and they cheer one another along, that they are going out and they are establishing godly dominion that blesses others, not just those in their own household, but blesses others everywhere that they go, and they are doing it together. So I just want to emphasize that and show you that as well. And then next, we see that parents are instructed and that Paul specifically calls out the leader there in uh, Ephesians 6, 4, fathers, fathers. Think about this first. (laughs) This great responsibility that we have, mom and dad. This great responsibility of going back to to Psalm 78, Deuteronomy 6, to to teaching and instructing our children in the ways of God. Not just in our words, but in our actions, and our rhythms of life, and what we do, and what we prioritize, and what we value, and what we put before them. And everything that we do, that we are instructing our children. That we can say right things and do things that contradict what we say, and we are instructing them. I'll never forget sitting with a dad six or seven years ago. And he said, wow, it just really frustrates me. When I get up in the morning, when we get up on Sunday morning, my kids say, or Saturday night, are we going to church today? He's like, well, what do you mean? And I was thinking, well, I know what they mean. You guys miss about three weeks every month, right? And he was blind to it. He thought, of course we're going to church. But they don't go to church regularly. And so the kids are saying, is tomorrow church day or is tomorrow an off day? Which one is it? And so we can say, but our kids are also watching what we do to see if what we say and what we do matches up together. I'll be honest with you. As we begin this section, I was thinking this week, it wouldn't be bad, Lord, if all my kids happened to be sick and couldn't be here this morning to hear in all the ways that I'm messing up, Right? Is I have to stand forth and proclaim God's word. But in his providence, only one of them is sick today. So <laughs> all right. So here we go. That parents are called first not to provoke their children to anger. Brothers and sisters, this is something that is so important that we need to understand and that we need to put forth in our minds. Some translations would say do not exasperate. Right? Children are, according to two authors, exasperated when, the parent, right, when we parent or discipline them out of selfish motives rather than out of love. That's a great summary of what happens, of the root of exasperation. When we parent or discipline them out of selfish motives rather than love. If I'm disciplining my kids because they're embarrassing me, I'm going to exasperate them. It's really not about them, it's about me in that moment. Friends, we cannot serve others if we're thinking about us. Because if we're thinking about us, we're really serving us and not serving them. And that's our children and anyone else that God has called us to serve. And so as we think on this, what else happens how else do we exasperate? We exasperate when we lack wisdom. When we're harsh in our discipline. When we're demanding of perfection and we're nagging and they feel like they can never get it right. Another author said they will not resent mom and dads oftentimes when that happens, but they'll begin to resent themselves first. Because God has given you this ability in this God-given gift of influence in that child's life. And if we're harsh and overbearing and they feel like they can never get it right, before they begin to resent us, they'll begin to resent self. Just yesterday, this may shock you, but I had a conversation with my kids, my three older ones, and when I got done, I thought, What I just said in, I don't know, 300, 3,000, 4,000 words. I don't know really what it was, right? Imagine that, talking too long. Me, that, that doesn't sound right. Preaching, right? Lecturing, pontificating, right? Whatever you want to call it. I could have said that much more succinctly. Less words, Matt, less words, right? But that takes wisdom to know. How can I be loving and direct and say, Hey, here's something that I want you to to see and here's something I want you to aim for without saying too much. So we need wisdom to not exasperate or provoke our children to anger. What this tells us is there is limits on our authority and that we're called not to exasperate, but look at the second part of the verse, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. You have to remember that you and I are, as parents are in this relationship to serve. You have to remember that ultimately these children are not our children, but they're the Lord's children. And that in this call to serve, that we are to put them first and seek what is good for them. And as we discipline, we are like that trellis that we said a few moments ago who is seeking to say not that way, not this way, but to train them up in the way that they should go so that they'll be strong and flourishing. As we look, and then we're called not only to discipline, to correct and say not this way, not that way, but we are to instruct. Go back to Psalm 78. Deuteronomy 6, we're to instruct them, if you look at those passages, continually. This world is instructing them continually. If you and I don't speak truth continually into their lives through what we say and what we do, then we are selling them short and not giving them what they need. It would be like us not feeding them or clothing them and providing their physical needs. We must seek to provide the needs that they have. Parents, there's times that we want to abdicate. Not only can we be harsh and overbearing in our discipline, but we might want to abdicate our discipline and because we're lazy. And because right now, oh, I don't really want the time for this. This is going to take so much time if I have to stop and walk them through why they shouldn't be doing this again. I think the most convicting thing that I ever say as a parent, and I've said this multiple times, and I still say this, how many times do I have to, to tell you this? Because every time I say, how many times do I have to tell you this, in my mind, immediately, it's like, I feel like the Lord's saying, how about you, Matt? How many times do I have to tell you this, this, or this, right? How many times did it take you to get that? You're you're, you're more hard-headed than they are. And so, but godly discipline is a form of serving them. Return back to Romans one thirty two. it says... This not only is there's this list of sins and disobedience to parents is there. Also in Romans one thirty two? it says this. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. That, that talks about how seriously God takes this. They not only that do them notice this but those who give approval to those who practice them parents, our lack of discipline with our children is giving approval to their disobedience to us. And it is listed out just as seriously there in Romans 1. No, we are not to exasperate. No, we are not to be overbearing. But no, we are not to abdicate our responsibility to train our children and say, not that way, this way. What we're saying is that neither parents nor children can be the center of the family, but rather God must be. And we must do what he has called us to and what he is instructing us to do. Remember, they are sinners, and so are you even if you're regenerated and you're still wrestling with indwelling sin. Remember, you cannot save them through your parenting, and I say thanks be to God for that. Because if my children's salvation depends on me, they're all already in hell. It is only through the gospel of Jesus Christ that they can be redeemed and be saved. Notice what William Farley says. This is a book I read years ago, helpful, Gospel-powered Parenting. He said, your child's problem is more than a bad day, no nap, or being hungry. How many times have we all used that excuse? Oh, they didn't get a nap today. Oh, they're just hungry right now. Nope. He says the heart of the problem is a problem heart. They act bad because they are bad. Right? We have to remember that they are sinners in need of a Savior. That they need Christ. Therefore, all of our instruction and all of our discipline is to be pointing them to their need for Christ and to the only Christ who can save them. We can think about the reformers and the three uses of the law with our discipline and our instruction as parents. That it was to restrain sin, right? Not this way, that way. To show them their need for Christ. This is what takes time. Do you know why you're doing that? Do you know why you're continuing to disobey? Do you know why you're continuing to be selfish and not want to share with your sister? Do you know why that you're continuing to, to, and to persist in this sin? Because you... Are a sinner in need of a savior. Restrain sin. Show them their need for Christ, and then after, by God's grace, when our children come to faith, we're to guide them in how to live in lives that honor God. The instruction, as I said a moment ago, parents were to teach. And we should want to constantly point our kids to the glory of the gospel. And we should want to show them that their deepest longings cannot be met or fulfilled by the things of this world. But it can only be fulfilled by Christ and Christ alone. So brothers and sisters, that instruction is going to look different at different stages of life. And that instruction is going to look different for different families who have different rhythms. But we are called to figure out ways to constantly walk and disciple our children and point them to the Lord. And so we may, there may be seasons where that is easy to do in a morning breakfast or at a family evening dinner. There may be seasons where that means we've got to get up earlier. There may be seasons where that means we're going to make the best use of the commute because we have a 30-minute commute and we're going to talk about the things of the Lord. But you and I have got to be committed as parents to training and to teaching our children because that is the call from the Lord. And so we have got to seek wisdom and the help of others around us in the church who can look and speak into our life. And help us understand ways that we could use and teach and instruct our kids in God's ways. Let me end with this. Parents, we have to be committed to prayer. We must pray and cry out for wisdom. And the good news is, is that James says God delights to give wisdom when we ask. We need wisdom. We need wisdom to know when to say more and when to say less. We need wisdom to know when to, when to give grace and when to hold them to the standard of God's word. We need wisdom to know the difference between these things and when it's appropriate and when it's not. We need wisdom to know when we're seeking their welfare and when we're actually just doing it for our own glory and for our own namesake. We need so much wisdom. And our children need salvation. One of the Puritans wrote, Pray for the salvation of your children and carry their names, every one of them, every day before the Lord with prayers. The cries, wherefore, shall pierce the very heavens. Charles Spurgeon <clears throat> wrote this about his own mother praying for them. This is, when I read this years ago, I thought, wow. Listen to what he said. Then came his mother's prayer. And some of the words of that prayer we shall never forget as he reflects back on his mother praying for them. Even when our hair is gray, I remember on one occasion her praying thus, Now, Lord, if my children go on in their sins, it will not be because of ignorance that they perish and my soul must bear a swift witness against them at the day of judgment if they lay not a hold of Christ. That, though, that that thought of my mother's words bearing swift witness against me pierced my conscience and stirred my heart, is what Spurgeon said. He said, I, Mom prayed for us, and she said, If they go on in their sins, it's not going to be because they didn't hear the gospel from me. And she said, I myself would have to bear witness against them at the day of judgment that they had the opportunity to repent and believe because I told them the gospel. And Spurgeon said, that thought of mother bearing a swift witness against me pierced my conscience and stirred my heart. Brothers and sisters, we must pray for our children. We must proclaim the gospel to them. And our prayers remind us that we are completely dependent on God in this serious task. As parents. There's much more that could be said, and I would encourage you to continue the conversation in base groups and with one another as you seek to allow the word to reverberate in our lives in this weighty task that God has called us to. But let's look at Ephesians 6, 5 through 9 now. Let me make a couple of comments. As I said a moment ago, this has often been called the household code of the book of Ephesians, and so you can think back to the things of Abraham and his and being listed out of his of his whole family and and so on. And the same in Paul's day that so often that bond servants and masters would have been a part of the household, right? That even the servants there are part of the household. So we don't have exact continuity between our context and their context. The servant master does not exactly equal employee employer. And neither does slavery or servitude of Paul's day equal slavery in America's recent past. Yet, there is instruction here for us. So we shouldn't draw straight lines. There are some similarities between employee-employer, and there are some similarities between uh, what we see there and um, here about servants and masters and slavery in America because Paul does tell them not to be harsh, right? And to stop your threatening. But at the same time, it's not exactly the same as what we know in our recent past. So let me just make a couple of comments and point you to a couple of passages of Scripture uh, on slavery in general. Biblical instruction on slavery, 1 Timothy 1.10, enslavers are mentioned in a, in a long list of sins of lawlessness. And so the Bible is clear that those who would enslave others are included, just as we mentioned a moment ago with disobedience to parents, that that is listed out in these sins of lawlessness. Exodus 21.16 says, Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him, shall be put to death. And so we see that that man-stealing is the way the the word literally reads that that is um, condemned in Scripture. And then we see even over in Philemon, Paul calls for Philemon to receive Onesimus back as a beloved brother. And then you can see in 1 Corinthians 7, 21, where Paul speaks to bond servants again. He says, were you a bond servant when you were called? Do not be concerned about that, saying that this, this servitude that you're in does not impact your salvation. But notice what he says, but if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself to the opportunity. If you can gain freedom, then get it. What you also need to know is that they did not live in a Western democracy like we live in. And so for often, many of them, as we see these instructions in the passage, they are, as some said, stuck in that place. And it's not something Paul says, if you can gain this freedom, then you should get it. But for many of them, that would not be an option. And for many of them, staying in the situation that they're in would be their only uh, way of providing for themselves. And there were times that even uh, with bond servants in Scripture that uh, during biblical times that the bond servants would have been more educated than the masters. And they would have done uh, a lot of the work for the household and they were treated well. But there were plenty of times where they were not treated well either as the passages indicate. And you can see the same in Peter's epistles uh, also. So with those things in mind, let's turn our attention here uh, to these few verses. First... We see that Paul is calling those who are in this situation to obey their masters with fear and trembling, and with a sincere heart. This is this is a high calling. This is a high calling for them. And there are some things here. If Paul can call these folks to this same standard, then the same would be true for you and I in our work relationships, right? With our managers that we would see that he says that that the call is to do the work that God has placed you in in this calling and to do it with a sincere heart not for them but for Christ and not by way of eye service as people pleasers but as bond servants, not of them but what of Christ doing the will of God from the heart and so Paul recognizes that that what what he's calling them to would only be the fruit of the gospel that it would only be the fruit of the gospel, that there would be those who would be able to obey and to give respect to, that's fear and trembling, and to do it with a sincere heart, with a genuineness and truthfulness and respectfulness, working for who? For Christ. Ultimately for Christ and for the witness of the gospel. I remember the Scottish theologian and pastor, Sinclair Ferguson, telling a story years ago about a friend who of his who was still back in Scotland and who one day had opened the door for a lady and he happened to open the door for a lady who was a committed feminist and she began to berate him and chide him for how dare you hold the door for me and open the door for me and the man's response was ma'am I did not hold the door open for you because you're a lady but I held the door open for you because I am a gentleman And the point stands, someone else is not going to determine my character in their actions. The same is true for you and I. We should not let the character of others determine our own character. And that's what Paul is calling them here to. That although they may be suffering unjustly under them, but that they would do this out of a sincere heart. Because again, as he said in other places, if you can get your freedom, get it. But he knows he's instructing those who have been saved by the gospel and a part of the church and who are stuck in a situation that they can't get themselves out of. And he says, in the midst of that, do what you are called to do, but do it for the Lord and not as a hypocrite. Rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, verse 7. Knowing knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord. And he says this, the Lord knows, is what he's saying. The Lord knows. The Lord knows. He also turns then, and he begins to instruct those who have authority. And he tells them, do the same. Masters, do the same to them. Stop your threatening. And you need to know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. Brothers and sisters, we are here instructed, if we are under authority, these pas- this passage makes clear to us that we should fulfill that office that God has given us, and he- we should fulfill the roles that he's given us under under these authorities to do Everything that we're called to do, to do it with sincerity and to do it it diligently as unto the Lord. Whether we eat or drink and everything that we do, that we do it to the glory of God. That we're called to give our best efforts with sincerity in the work and vocations that God has given us. And to do it for God's glory. And then we see here as well that if we are those who have authority over others in our workplaces, that we are to do it knowing that their master, whether they be a believer or not, their ultimate authority is God, and he has created them in his image, that their master and ours right, shows no partiality, and that we are to love them and serve them with an authority that represents our Father in heaven. Therefore, our authority that we exercise should do what we just saw a moment ago. It should grow those who are under us. It should lead to their flourishing. It should lead to them growing in their ability to love and to serve others through their vocations and through their callings. That we should not give, that we should give them respect as image bearers of God, that we should not dehumanize them, and that we should do it with sincerity because we're called to the same standard. And we should lead them. As if you were leading Christ himself. And treat them with that reverence and that love. And that you're to do this for God's glory and not for your own glory. See, we all have a true and greater master who doesn't show partiality. Brothers and sisters, when we stand before the Lord on the last day, he's not going to be impressed by any titles that we may hold or have held on this life. Superintendent, foreman, VP, CFO, COO, CEO, whatever. He's not impressed. We either stand clothed in Christ and his righteousness before the Lord of the universe whose eyes will burn like fire and will pierce our hearts and our very motives. We will either stand clothed in Christ's righteousness or we will stand on our own to answer for how we wielded the authority that he gave us. Did we use it? to serve others and did we use it to rightly point to the God who gave it to us as the God who loves and who serves and who seeks to grow those for their good and his glory under his authority. So this is the call that we have as God's people, as parents, as those who, who may have authority in our workplaces and have those who work under us, as husbands and as wives, and even back to 521, as fellow church members, that we are to seek the good of one another and seek to see one another raised up in Christlikeness and godliness more and more in the way that we exercise the authority and the various offices that God places us in. And last, where we end, what we see is, (laughs) if you feel that weight this morning, if you feel that weight as a parent, if you feel that weight as a husband, if you feel that weight as a fellow church member, if you feel that weight as a child in this room, if you feel that weight as one who works under authority in the workplace or one who has authority in the workplace, you should be able to say, Lord, have mercy on us all. Lord, have mercy on us all. And that is the call for us this morning. There's no one there. Y'all can close the door. It just kind of blew open uh, the door. Didn't. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, there's nobody there. All right, good to do. <clears throat> but you should be able to call out, Lord, have mercy on us all. And that God would give grace to us. And what we recognize is that the gospel is for all. And that we all need the gospel. And so this morning... It may be very true of you that you didn't have parents who operated according to Ephesians chapter 6. It may be very true of you that you don't have people who work under you or people who work over you who operate according to these principles that we've seen this morning. You may, have, you may not have that in your marriage, but the reality is this morning you have a God in heaven who loves you And delights in you through Christ Jesus. And if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ. You can have one who has come to exercise all authority in heaven and earth. And to wield that authority for your good. Yet this morning you have to recognize that you are an anti-authority rebel who has sought to be your own king and your own God, and you must lay down your arms and your rebellion, and you must bow before this king. But can I tell you that a king who has come from heaven to earth and who laid down his life and died for you is a king worthy of you bowing before and saying, I submit to your authority. That's a king who is not only your savior, but is a good Lord for you and who will lead you by paths And by green pastures and still waters and who will lead you to a life of flourishing who will lead you to what you were intended for and what you were created for which is a relationship with the God who made you and who created you so that you can know the fullness of joy of which you have only grasped and gathered glimpses of it in this life. And So this morning there is a king who has served you and his name is Christ by living the life you could not live. Dying the death that you deserve. And the call this morning from God's word is, and the call that he has as the king who has served you is, repent. He still issues a command, but it is a command for your good. Lay down your weapons. Lay down your rebellion. It's only ending in sin, shame, sorrow, death, and hell. Lay them down and receive amnesty from the king and receive forgiveness and mercy and grace and be brought into the family of God. And know the fullness of joy through that relationship with him. And so this morning the call is repent and believe the gospel. Whether you're a child, whether you're an adult, whether you're the one with the most authority in this room, or whether you're the one with the least authority in this room, whether you've had good earthly authorities or bad earthly authorities, the call for all of us is repent and believe the gospel. And for those of us who have done that already, the call is to go out and rightly image our Father in heaven in this world in every office of authority he may give us until he returns or calls us home. And to do that, brothers and sisters, we can never forsake or abandon our understanding and our need for the gospel, but we must rest in the gospel and be fueled by the gospel if we're going to love others that way. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we ask that you would use it this morning in our lives to shape us and to form us. Father, we pray for parents in this room. What a weighty, weighty call. Lord, we pray that you would give us grace upon grace, and that you would give us wisdom, and that you would give us a love for you first and foremost that would drive everything that we do in the home. Father, that we would have the humility and the grace to confess our shortcomings before our before our children and that even in showing them our need for the gospel, we could point them to the gospel and their need. Father, we pray for our children. We pray for them in this call that you have for them to obey parents because we know that we're not perfect and we're not always easy to obey. We know that we're going to fail and they have this, this call from you. And so, Lord, we ask you give them grace and that you give them a heart that is Disposition toward mom and dad. And Father, that mom and dad would, would wield that well and would cherish that and would cultivate that. Lord, we pray for the salvation of our children in this church. Ultimately, that they would know you through Christ Jesus. And Father, we do, we pray for husbands and wives. We pray for church members. We pray for those who are, who are under authority and in authority in their workplaces. Lord, give us grace to apply your truth that we've been looking at these last few weeks in our lives. And that it would be for your glory and for the good of those around us. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.